sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about renewed military drills between the United States and South Korea and what that means for the Korean Peninsula, East Asia and the world. Also going to be talking about renewed conflict in the Horn of Africa between the Ethiopian government and the TPLF. And it's Friday, which means we're having our weekly segment, the Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics and struggle. And as always, at 320 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move Move on. Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, rest easy, folks. We will not have a ministry of truth lording over information and ideas, churning out propaganda and controlling what the masses think, like in George Orwell's 1984, because the Department of Homeland Security has decided to formally and completely dissolve their little disinformation governance board. If you recall, the Disinformation Governance Board was launched by the Biden administration in April of this year and was immediately characterized as Biden's Ministry of Truth, as the mission of the agency was to combat alleged misinformation regarding the U.S. and NATO's dirty little proxy war in Ukraine. It didn't help that the person Biden named to be the head of the board was Nina Jankowitz, an author and so-called disinformation expert who, it was revealed, had previously worked for the Ukrainian foreign ministry as a lobbyist targeting Russia and Belarus with democracy assistance programs while promoting disinformation of her own. It's worth noting that among the disinformation that she spun was the claim that it was Russia that made up the Hunter Biden laptop story, except that the laptop and all the files that point to lots of corruption, and I still maintain the paper trail of the coup are very real, even if the U.S. media doesn't want to talk about it anymore. Leaked documents also revealed that Jankowitz worked for the UK's Integrity Initiative, a shadowy influence operation that meddled with the political process in the UK and abroad under the guise of defending democracy. Sounds very much like one of those social media misinformation campaigns that was exposed by Stanford University's Internet Observatory study that we talked about yesterday, doesn't it? Anyway, the Department of Homeland Security tried to keep the propaganda control project alive, but ultimately had no choice but to end it after the Homeland Security's own advisory council's final report asserted that there was no need for the board and claimed that the agency had fallen prey to mission creep, the mission of the agency expanding beyond its original and intended parameters, they mean. Well, that's ironic because DHS itself is an example of the vast mission creep of government agencies having been created after 9-11 to, quote, protect the homeland from terrorist threats, now becoming ubiquitous in the shadowy realm of domestic surveillance programs and domestic security, which can and does mean anything and everything that the feds want it to mean. And it's always bad news for us. So there will be no disinformation governance board now that the DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas has officially announced its termination and revoked 
its charter. But that doesn't mean that there isn't already plenty of pro-U.S. anti-Russia propaganda being circulated. That's what the corporate media does every day. A separate entity wasn't even needed to do it. The Washington Post reports that the Pentagon has introduced a plan to reduce civilian casualties resulting from airstrikes and other sensitive military operations after military officials have been under fire for attempting to cover up repeated civilian casualties. The Pentagon's plan includes embedding what they call risk mitigation specialists in military operations centers throughout the world, establishing a center of excellence to promote best practices and instituting oversight from the highest levels of the Defense Department. The Pentagon claims that special attention will be given to addressing cognitive bias or erroneously interpreting evidence in a way that confirms one's suspicions and reducing the likelihood of target misidentification. And they claim that attack plans posing unnecessary risks to civilians will be thoroughly checked, gut checked is the term they use, before they are carried out. Air Force Brigadier General Patrick Ryder, the Pentagon press secretary, said of these new strategies to reduce the number of civilians killed in U.S. airstrikes and attacks, quote, it's not that we haven't taken civilian harm mitigation into account in the past. It's just trying to apply a consistent approach across the department so that this becomes a matter of how we do business. Ryder called the effort quote, a direct reflection of U.S. values as well as a strategic and moral imperative, end quote. U.S. values? Since 2007, the U.S. has carried out airstrikes in Somalia 260 times, resulting in between 78 and 153 estimated civilian deaths, as reported by air wars. But the U.S. admits to only five of those deaths. Since 2002, the U.S. has carried out 181 airstrikes in Yemen, resulting in an estimated 77 to 156 civilian deaths as a direct result of those airstrikes. But the U.S. only admits to 13 of those deaths. The U.S. led coalition actions in Iraq and Syria since 2014 have resulted in an estimate of between 8,192 to 13,247 civilian deaths in 14,886 airstrikes in Iraq and 19,904 airstrikes in Syria, but the U.S. admits to only 1,417 of those civilian deaths. And Joseph Biden has just carried out more airstrikes in Somalia and in Syria. U.S. values, their death and destruction. And how the U.S. government does business, it's deflection and deception. No matter what they say, no one in the U.S. government, and certainly not in the U.S. military, is going to change that strategy. There is no morality in the U.S. government's never-ending wars. Follow Lukeman Nation on patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary.
And today we're talking about joint military exercises between the U.S. and South Korea. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Mia, a member of Dal for Korean Community Development. Mia, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And thanks for joining us, Mia. And uh, the U.S. and South Korean governments have, in fact, begun what is reportedly their biggest joint military in years. And although, you know, they call these uh, things military drills or uh, uh, exercises, I mean, but in truth, uh, they really seem like war games uh, specifically aimed at threatening the the DPRK or uh, North Korea. And so uh, just to begin. Again, and to kind of understand what's really happening here, Mia, could you sort of explain just what are the U.S. and South Korea doing in these military drills and what do you see as their motivation? Um, so just for a little bit of context, the, these war drills have been going on for a very long time, every year since 1955, which is about a year and a half after the armistice agreement was signed. So this year, after a four year pause, they're resuming in person um, with live military drills. So historically, these drills have included air, land, and sea exercises, rehearsing an invasion into ADP, into the DPRK. So a very antagonistic stance, despite claims of them being purely defensive drills. What's significant about these drills is that they intensify the tensions with North Korea every time they take place. And with North Korea having no way of knowing if these drills are covered for sneak attacks, they're forced to be put on this high alert defensive position. And if you ask the U.S. or South Korea why they're doing these drills, but claim that these drills are defensive in nature, that they support inter-Korean dialogue and peace on the peninsula, um, but if that were really true, they would end the sanctions, they would end the Korean War and withdraw from the peninsula after after 70 years. So what we see with these military exercises traditionally held every year is that they're really there to kind of flex um, and intimidate and incite um, aggression under the guise of defensive um, and reinforcing the defensive nature um, and partnership between the ROK and U.S. military. And these drills uh, at this time are pretty massive. Why are these drills happening at the scale with which they are happening now, Mia? Yeah, um, a lot of it actually has to do with South Korea's new conservative president, Yoon Suk-yeol, who has a very hawkish stance towards the DPRK. Yoon not only supports having these larger scale exercises that we're seeing this year, but he also supports other aggressive measures like preemptive missile strikes against North Korea and the Korea Massive Punishment and Retaliation Doctrine, which plans to take out North Korean leadership um, and reduce North Korea to ash through ballistic missiles and explosive shelling. So this past year, he met with President Biden and they both agreed to take a harder line against North Korea to intensify these exercises. Um, Yoon has been using dialogue, saying how he vows to, quote, normalize these joint drills, claiming that maintaining peace is built on a strict security posture. Um, but in reality, how is increased militarization conducive to de-escalating this tension? Um, so that's one part of it, is that um, the new conservative president um, has very eager to be in lockstep with the Biden administration and their so-called pivot to Asia strategy. Another important reason why these drills are so large in scale is that, um, or intensified this year, is that especially when comparing them to the presence of drills in recent years, um, they are 
definitely um, much larger and more intensive. For context, in 2018, the drills were reduced to computer simulations after Trump and Kim Jong-un's meeting at the Singapore summit, where they discussed lifting some sanctions, which you know didn't end up happening the following year. Um, and also the onset of COVID also reduced their scale. So especially in comparison to the past um, four or so years, um, they're definitely um, upping um, in their intensive in their intensification. Yeah. And, you know, Mia, it seems that uh, whenever we talk about military drills, it's always sort of framed as a something that only happens amongst governments. But I mean, there are real people on the ground uh, uh, who are impacted by this as well. And I mean, even in South Korea, there were some pretty large protests uh, that were taking place um, in, you know, in in resistance to these military drills that, you know, went completely ignored uh, by the mainstream media here in the U.S. And so that makes me wonder, how do these drills affect Koreans on the ground uh, on both ends of the peninsula? Yeah, I think you worded that perfectly. It's not just an abstract um, thing happening um, amongst um, Koreans. This is something that really impacts people's day-to-day lives. Um, as you mentioned, the Korea's largest trade union, Korean Federation of Trade Unions, organized tens of thousands for this mass protest in Seoul, protesting the drills, calling for their suspension, demanding the dissolution of this U.S. ROK alliance and just the withdrawal of U.S. forces from the peninsula. And I think that's really just a good, I guess, flash or a snapshot of time that really represents the greater resistance um, by Koreans um, against the U.S. occupation of the peninsula. So beyond the latest protests against the drills, there's larger movement to get the U.S. troops out as Korea's part of as part of Korea's right to self-determination and peace. So um, in years past and ongoing, there are protests in smaller villages where the U.S. government has installed THAAD missile batteries without the consulate of residents, placing civilians at the front line of attack. Um, just this morning, I saw a video of a student protest at the Yongsan U.S. base, which shows, you know, how youth how, are also leaders in this movement to demilitarize the peninsula and how this is really an intergenerational um, cause. And on Jeju Island, for example, people have been protesting for years against the construction of a U.S. naval base. Koreans have been displaced from their land um, and also their agricultural land as well to make way for um, increased U.S. military base construction. So there is great resistance against the continued treatment of Korea as a U.S. neo-colony. And with the ROK government serving the U.S. military in this way, um, the legacy of this kind of artificially created U.S. division of the Korean people only continues. Yeah, and it was U.S. uh, militarism and the uh, absolutely destructive Korean War that uh, created uh, the divisions between the DPRK and South Korea. And there have been reunification efforts uh, since then to to reunify the Korean peninsula. So how have these uh, renewed drills affected the tensions between the DPRK and South Korea? And how did the drills uh, that have been revived affect the even more recent efforts at reunification? Yeah. um, So I think it really puts the hope of, you know, having a dialogue um, that's really set by um, Korean people and Korean leadership um, at risk. One of the most important um, tenets of this concept of Tongil or reunification is that 
um, it is led by Korean leadership. There is no mediator. Um, and I think what the war drills represent, um, you know, every year is the continue the U.S.'s continued use of um, South Korea and um, the South Korean military as a pawn to increase those divisions. And while the U.S. administration says they support this inter-Korean dialogue, um, when they're spending so much money to have the largest um, military troop presence outside of um, North America on the peninsula, um, creating this division and creating these exercises to do um, in joint step, it really undermines the will and the self-determination and the capabilities um, that Korean leadership can have amongst each other, um, them kind of in, like inserting themselves in this way. Um, so it really, does, it really does increase tensions and it does make it a lot more difficult um, and making conversations, um, jeopardizing conversations for other steps like denuclearization into jeopardy as well. Yeah, and a little earlier, Mia, you mentioned Yoon Suk Yeol, the uh, a current president of South Korea, a, a right-wing figure coming after the more uh, liberal presidency of Moon Jae-in. And I'm wondering, how has his administration's uh, so far sort of affected uh, South Korea in the calculus of geopolitics within East Asia, particularly as the U.S. rolls on with this you know, so-called pivot to Asia that began under uh, Barack Obama? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so what I will say is that um, the previous president, Moon Jae-in, um, while he was kind of branded as this more liberal president, um, he definitely was still a pawn for the U.S., although in a slightly more passive way. And I guess mm-hmm. it really separates Yoon in this way is that he is explicitly eager um, to be side by side with all of the U.S.'s and Biden's desires to continue militarizing Asia and raising tensions um, and really trying to be a vehicle for the U.S.'s, quote, contain China policy. Um, For example, Yoon has talked about how he would welcome an invitation to join the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue Partnership, which is a U.S.-led anti-China security partnership. And while the U.S. has said doesn't plan on inviting South Korea, this is just you know, indicative of Yoon's eagerness to partake in all pro-U.S. groups and exercises. Yoon was also the first South Korean president in history to attend a NATO summit. So he attended alongside with Japan, Australia, and New Zealand as Asia-Pacific partners. Other, other ways that Yoon's kind of influencing South Korea's geopolitical posture is that he's expressed interest um, in a South Korea-Japan military alliance, which, would inc- which could include deploying Japanese soldiers to Korea. And this pro-Japan policy does really seek to erase Japan's colonial past to build a military alliance against North Korea. So he is definitely um, eager to be in partnership with U.S. and Biden to continue the militarization and raising tensions in um, the East Asia region. And how do you see these drills in light of recent uh, RIMPAC war games, which saw soldiers participate in drills uh, simulating an attack on North Korea? Is Do these drills uh, just make uh, those war games even more dangerous and become one you know, large threat to uh, peace and safety, not just for the pen- uh, Korean peninsula, but for the rest of the world? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I definitely see these recent RIMPAC war games as a continuation of the threats against North Korea. And it's also important to note there's always an undercurrent of exercises and threats against North Korea. And instances like the RIMPAC exercises and the war drills that we're hearing about this week are just only the most highly visible, high peaks of tension um, that get attention from the media. So what we see um, and hear in the news is just, um, you know, the most highly visible um, ways that there's a continued aggression against North Korea. Um, Another note about RIMPAC is what I'll say is RIMPAC was not supposed to be, quote, officially targeted at any country, but clearly it was targeted at North Korea and China. We saw um, footage secured by the Empire Files of soldiers practicing and shooting into North Korean homes, you know, mock dining room. Like you could look into the doorway and you would see a made up dining room table um, with portraits of DPRK leadership above them, really simulating that the, they're practicing to invade civilian homes. Um, and something else about the RIMPAC exercises as well is that um, the U.S. involved 25 to 26 countries to the RIMPAC exercises, um, which is, you know, an, a, a continuation of the concerning trend of how much these war exercises continue to increase um, in, sc- in scale Um with no other kind of way to um, mitigate or sustainable path forward. Um, It's just increasing in scale and intensification um, with every exercise that we see. And, you know, just 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 the hypocrisy of U.S. imperialism is so striking me when you describe what these things actually look like, because if the shoe was the was on the other foot and there were these two countries that had these war games where they practiced, you know, like invading the White House or going into uh, American homes or trying to decapitate the national leadership of the United States. I mean, I shudder to think about uh, how that would look and how that would play out. But I think that particularly for those of us uh, in the United States, for the anti-imperialist movement here, it's important that we understand and keep an eye on what's happening as it pertains to uh, the United States and the the Korean Peninsula as the implications there could literally have implications for humanity itself, you know? Absolutely. Um, Especially when we the U.S. kind of justifies these so-called defensive war drills Um, against the backdrop of North Korea possibly doing its seventh nuclear test when the U.S. is the um, has the most nuclear weapons out of any country in the world, has the only country to have dropped um, an atomic bomb. So um, for them to kind of justify having these war drills under the under the guise of peacekeeping and creating a defensive posture is just pure hypocrisy um, when they have have a track record of creating the most um, havoc, destruction and death. Um, in the world. That's a fact. Well, we thank you so much, Mia, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
And today we're talking about developments in the Horn of Africa. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Simon Tespameriam, Executive Director of the New Africa Institute. Simon, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. Well, the pleasure is all ours, Simon. And it seems that, uh, unfortunately, a military conflict has resumed between the Ethiopian government under Api Ahmed and the forces of the TPLF after a ceasefire that had been holding in place for some months with uh, uh, both sides sort of blaming the other for uh, the attack that actually sparked this. And I was hoping you could help us understand, Simon, I mean, uh, just what happened here? How did these uh, uh, tensions sort of resume? I should say, how did this uh, sort of uh, military conflict resume? And, and what kind of impact do you think this will have on, you know, uh, uh, relations in terms of how this whole issue is playing out now? So, yes, as you mentioned, uh, there was a truce that goes back to March of this year um, in which the sides agreed to, um, you know, uh, you know, have a ceasefire and uh, it was apparent to the world that negotiations were in the process between the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front in northern Ethiopia, uh, in the region of Tigray, and the Ethiopian federal government. And what happened was that um, for a period of months, there was a lot of speculation about where these negotiations were headed, and uh, it became increasingly clear that this process was going to go through the African Union as a special envoy from the African Union um, was, you know, conducting shuttle diplomacy at the time. Um, you know, it, it, it seemed like Africa was on the side of this process going through the African Union. And um, at the same time, you had the United States that was trying to open up a different process uh, to take it outside of Africa and go, um, you know, another route through the West. And so during this period, TPLF had been displaying, um, expressing its dismay with that and saying that it should go outside of the African Union. And um, as the months went on, it became in, you know, stronger and stronger rhetoric and becoming increasingly bellicose to the point where um, you know, they're saying they must indeed start going on the offensive. And you have the leader of Tigray, or the TPLF, excuse me, Debrett uh, and Michael, who says, we're going to have to have everyone participate in this war, get, essentially saying get ready for war, and saying that everyone, including children would have to be involved. And this isn't the first time that he said this. Um, you also noticed um, increasingly desperate uh, sort of um, claims by uh, the leader of TPLF and now who the uh, World Health Organization chief, Tedros Adhanom, uh, he was saying, uh, you know, that we need uh, communications, banking, uh, fuel, Integrai, and I, I put emphasis on that last word, fuel, um, you know, in addition to other things, food and so many things that are needed, um, you know, during this humanitarian crisis because TPLF is essentially holding the region hostage. But anyway, he points this out and even goes as far as making the claim that uh, there isn't enough focus on Tigray because of the fact that, uh, you know, because of the color of their skin is what he claims. So basically he was pulling the race card, um, although this, you know, is inevitably true in terms of international affairs, at that time, it seemed disingenuous from his, from his part, given the fact that TPLF had been holding an entire region hostage, and there had been allegations of uh, TPLF 
um, essentially stealing aid and all this kind of stuff, which, which we'll get into in a second. But my point is, is that what happened was uh, the rhetoric was becoming stronger. There was claims that, you know, two guys under siege, that the world isn't doing enough. There was uh, WF didn't say we're going to recruit, you know, soldiers and we're going to go on the offensive. Uh, and those soldiers included children. And then finally, just yesterday, you heard uh, for the first time, uh, even though there had been some minor flare-ups uh, flare here and there, that basically they're now going to go on the offensive. In fact, Gatachuradda, uh, the head of uh, TPLF, said it in the New York Times a couple of days ago that we are on the offensive, is what he said. So it's clear that TPLF is on the offensive. They made prior statements um, and they rejected the uh, AU negotiations process. And all of a sudden, you, you have the, you know, uh, the outbreak of war. Um, and so th that was a couple of days ago. But what's interesting, at the exact same day that this war was not being initiated, we also hear from the UN Security Council spokesperson that TPLF had just stolen 500 liters of fuel in 12 tankers uh, at a, at a uh, UN warehouse that was slated for WB, WFP food distributions. So it's, it's quite amazing that on the same day that all this, we find out that fuel is being stolen, that there's also... The, the start of an offensive by TPLF. And now, as is always the fashion with TPLF, there's always the pointing the finger at the other side thing, accusations in the mirror is what they call it, uh, where, you, you know, you can't tell who's the guilty party, the he said, she said. Uh, so um, this is then followed usually by both sides, both sidesism uh, on the part of the international community that both sides should show restraint, but never really calling out TPLF uh, and their role in initiating this. Yes, Simon, and I'm wondering what was the controversy uh, that at least the TPLF pointed to for negotiations that were led by the uh, African Union that they did not like, that they felt like they needed to get uh, the rest of the international community, which obviously means the United States involved. What, what were the reasons that the TPLF gave for opposing the African Union's mediation uh, uh, between between them and the Ethiopian government? It's essentially that the, the African Union was biased. That, um, that, that's essentially what it comes down to. And, um, and that it was, because it wasn't an independent process, it had to be taken outside of Africa. But this is at a time when Africa is saying African solutions for African problems. This is the general feeling throughout the continent. You can't find anywhere within Africa an independent process you have to take it out to Western, uh, you know, Western nations who have a history of colonialism and imperialism on the continent. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It, it, and that's what I was sort of con confused about as well. And so that that makes me wonder then, uh, Simon, what do you think is the motivation for the TPLF to to take this stance and trying to uh, take uh, the issue uh, out of the purview of the African Union? Like, what do you think they're really after here and trying to bring in, you know, namely a lot of these uh, Western states and things like this? Well, we know from the beginning of this conflict that the TPLF was going to rely on the West to essentially save itself from, uh, or, or to provide its support in this conflict. Now, during the Trump administration, uh, support was not, you know, quick to come. Uh, in fact, 
there was a uh, reservation on the Trump administration's regard uh, uh, part. And as soon as Biden came into office, along with Susan Rice, Gail Smith, Samantha Powers, and all these people who have a very checkered history when it comes to the Horn of Africa, and in particular Ethiopia and Eritrea, um, it was clear that, you know, this support was going to be coming. And in fact, it did. We saw a round of sanctions against Eritrea and Ethiopia, uh, removal from AGOA, uh, you know, as a form of, as a threat, really, gunboat type of diplomacy coming from the, from the United States, uh, side. And, um, so, so because they are essentially playing what appears to be, um, you know, a guilty party in this conflict, uh, or excuse me, um, a party to this conflict, um, you know, it's, 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 of course, TPLF would want them to be, you know, in their corner and would want to be on their home turf. So this is essentially the reason um, the United States cannot uh, lead this process at all. It's clearly demonstrated by its, uh, you know, first of all, terrible reporting um, on this conflict totally taking the side of TPLF. In fact, uh, New African Institute published a report back in May uh, 9th of last year about the disinformation that was being produced um, by the West, and in particular the United States and, and its media, um, you know, just totally uh, taking a one-sided approach on this. And um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's something that um, it's not a fair playing field when it comes to the United States. And so TPLF knows this and wants to take it out of uh, Africa and into the United States or the EU, its its partner. So now that the uh, tensions have now erupted into open conflict, what does the path to peace look like? What does it entail? Or is there uh, a path to peace that can be uh, laid out uh, to end this conflict? Well, the fact that TPLF um, has multiple preconditions for negotiations, which are virtually impossible to, which are impossible to meet, um, it, it is hard to imagine a negotiated settlement to this conflict. Uh, you can, as an example of some of these preconditions, they're asking for, and, and let me back up and say first um, that they started this war. TPLF openly admitted it back in November 2020. Um, they said, we started this war. It was an attack on the, on the Northern Command of Ethiopia, which had 80% of the arms of the country. And if they had captured that, that would have been essentially a coup uh, against Addis Ababa, and they would have come to power. Very dangerous situation that was quickly put down, uh, fortunately. And, what, um, and so now when you fast forward to today with these negotiations and you're talking about preconditions, um, the, the TPLF is asking for, remember, in a conference, conflict in which it started, um, to have banking, communications, food aid, fuel, everything granted from the federal government. And in fact, to be included in the, the federal budget of Ethiopia, um, despite uh, having gone its own way and saying that we're essentially no longer Ethiopians and that we're, the, you know, that uh, seeing the government is illegitimate. How can you, on the one hand, say a government's illegitimate, be at war with it, and at the same time ask for aid, ask for basic services? Um, and then the, the, another major, major precondition is that they're saying that they have to have um, uh, what they're calling Western Tigray back. 
And Western Tigray is basically the northern part of Tigray, which communicates with, which connects with uh, Sudan. Um, so uh, a little bit of history here, going back to um, 1995, Ethiopia had just instituted a uh, new constitution the previous year, and um, and what happened was they created a system known as ethnic federalism, where they changed all the borders in Ethiopia uh, from the prior regime to one where now it would be based on ethnicity. And so they annexed um, totally for itself uh, the, the, uh, the region known as Walkait, uh, Humera, and others, um, which basically can, it's fertile land, important land that would connect it to Sudan, that would connect Tigray now to Sudan. So this new region called uh, with new borders Tigray region, um, you know, then was the you know a point of contention for so many people in the uh, uh, in that um, you know in northern Ethiopia because the, that region was actually Amhara land, ancestral Amhara land, another ethnic group in Ethiopia. So um, so you know many accounts of atrocities over those years. Uh, there's one you know there's one by Gondor University in which, you know, they talked about, um, you know, mass graves and all this stuff of Amharas and just terrible things that were done to the Amhara people there. So my point is, is that this contentious region that they annexed illegally through this, uh, I guess, legally through this constitution, but what the, the constitution itself was contested by so many, it was just shoved, um, upon, uh, shoved down the throats of the people. So um, essentially, uh, this, this region now, um, they're asking for it back. They're saying this is what we require. Um, we require uh, access to this region before we can come to the, the negotiating table. If we don't have it, uh, we can't negotiate. So banking services, aid, fuel, uh, you just go down the list. All this stuff um, they're asking for, you know, and, and uh, control of uh, what they're calling Western Tigray. It's not practical. It is, it's, it's, it's very... Um, it's creating the preconditions that make negotiation impossible. So this is essentially the, the problem that we have with DPLF and negotiations. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Simon, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're going to move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Friday, which means it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle with Nate Wallace, co-host of the Red Spin Sports Podcast. Nate, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean and Jackie. Glad to be back. Absolutely. And Nate, you know, there's some interesting developments, I think, with the issue of NIL, the name, image and likeness piece as it concerns college athletes and their ability to actually benefit from uh, the work they do for these uh, uh, college sports programs. And I'm sort of generally wondering how you're viewing uh, uh, the whole situation around NIL at this point. I mean, it's still pretty new. It, It already feels like there's been a lot that's happened. So, I mean, what is your 
your estimation for how that whole piece has been unfolding up until this point? And what do you think we should be looking out for? Yeah, well, I think it's just interesting and it's important to note that, again, that, like, you know, with college athletics, we had that Supreme Court decision that very few Supreme Court decisions, you know, the unanimous 9-0 decision uh, that had Brett Kavanaugh side, you know, writing the majority opinion uh, that essentially got rid of the ability of the NCAA last summer to uh, use um, amateurism as a uh, guise with which to uh, avoid any kind of uh, – any kind of payment to uh, to athletes, but the way they didn't do is it didn't make them, you know, workers. They kind of collective bargaining rights. It created what we call the right to profit off of your name, image, and likeness, which you know should have gone without saying. Um, should have been something that had been in place, but now this goes into place. There had already been certain states that had like in- incrementally um, opened it up, and. You know, with anything, we're, we're talk, we live in a context of the political economy of neoliberal capitalism, and you've had this artificial, you know, um, you know, artificial rules essentially getting in the way of what you know people would say are market forces um, that these players should be able to capitalize on this. So, what you have is not like a sort of a you know stipend payment money where like all the players are being compensated for their labor on the field. It's the ones that are able to gain the most popularity on social media most influence on TikTok, Instagram, that are able to then, you know, capitalize on that by turning their influence ability into, uh, you know, monetary gain through doing ads for Cash App, doing ads like B. John Robinson, University of Texas for Lamborghini, or C.J. Stroud at Ohio State, um, the quarterback there with, um, I think, Bentley was with, with, with these guys. So you're, you're going to start seeing, you know, a bigger and bigger divide in, in, uh, in terms of, you know, the players with major notoriety, the players at big-time schools, um, but yeah, I'm getting huge deals. But you also have, like, a player, like, a, you know, you look at, like, you know, the smaller ranks, too. This is There's been many female athletes that have um, gotten, you know, good NIL deals and have been able to leverage their ability, whether it be volleyball, women's basketball, softball, um, to to capitalize off this too. And it really raises the question is like, what took so long on this? Um, HBCU running back, uh, you know, Raekwon Smith at Norfolk state called the king of NIL has had over 70 deals. I mean, even though he's at a, you know, a smaller school in Norfolk state in Virginia. Um, uh, but you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it shows he's kind of been savvy in this. He's been able to find kind of like these smaller deals and, and doing different, you know, short-term promotions for different companies. But again, this is sort of like goes back to the critique a lot of people on the, you know, that come out of the left uh, would have is that like essentially what this was going to do was just kind of turn this into um, an indoctrination sort of, uh, you know, operation for, you know, making people essentially the hustlers and salesmen for, um, or saleswomen uh, for uh, for every, you know, every every corporation, every every uh, every little outfit, every corporate hustle you could imagine, and uh, you know, good good that they're getting you know money in their pockets. But uh, again, this is no real sweat off the back of these institutions, except for a lack of you know the what they perceive coaches as like a, a lack of control. A lot of times when you um, you know. They would never want to say it out loud, but the fact that you have people that are financially desperate as your players that are dependent on you, right, then you're going to have a degree of power over them that uh, they, 
uh, you don't have when they you know have more financial opportunities. So I think some coaches have embraced it, but many, uh, you know, begrudgingly and uh, just kind of putting on an about face. Um, and uh, you know, think of player empowerment as like a dirty word and something they have to like manage and deal with. Like this is just like uh, you know really changing you know it used to be the for the love of the school and the, the name on the front of the jersey not the back and and you're hearing a lot of that kind of nostalgia you know nonsense but uh where this is only going to accelerate and uh i think just further sort of you know <laughs> expose and reveal um how but really, for this generation coming up, it's all about selling yourself. It's all about finding a way to build your, your niche influence ability. And, uh, you know, kids are kind of looking at the landscape and seeing that this is sort of like the the, the model that uh, the, this economic system is uh, is providing. Yeah, and it seems to me that this has opened up a kind of opportunism in uh, college athletics that, uh, you know, the, the, the corporations are swooping in to take advantage of. And I think this is reflected in this uh, uh thing, this scheme, <laughs> I think that's, I can't think of a better word for it, uh, that was created by this company called Big League Advantage, or BLA. Uh, and I guess he was on a call with some uh, uh, folks in uh, college athletics. And this gambit, this scheme seems to exchange or offer the ability for college athletes to exchange uh, NIL riches for a portion of future earnings. This to me sounds like a way for companies like BLA, Big League Advantage, to make more, to make money off of these athletes. But I, I don't know. It, it seems murky to me. But but what's your what are your thoughts on on this? You know, th this I, I don't know what to call it other than a scheme, yeah. Nate, honestly, oh, that yeah. that has been introduced by BLA. So Michael Schwimmer is a former Major League Baseball pitcher for the Philadelphia Phillies. Um, and he's you know, in charge of, of BLA, Big League Advantage, you know, they most notably had signed Fernando Tatis, who just ignominiously uh, was suspended 80 games for a performance-enhancing drug suspension, the San Diego Padres shortstop. And, um, you know, he got, a, you know, basically, think of it as like a payday loan, cash advance, but just like on a massively... Um, much, much, much more uh, epic scale here, you know, major league sports uh, uh, level. And uh, so with Tatis, I mean, his deal is massive, hundreds of millions of dollars with the Padres. Um, but he owes, like, I, I forget the exact percentage. There was a HBO Real Sports story and I um, on this about a year ago. And I think I briefly mentioned it maybe in passing in a past report, but um, it's really accelerating now. Um, you have... Um, you know, more stories on it now with image, image and likeness. They've really expanded it now to beyond go beyond baseball primarily. Basically, baseball is a big part of it. And the reason they were able to really grow and get the seed capital money they got, startup cash that they got to start this, was that minor league baseball players are in such a financially vulnerable position. I mean, you're looking the estimates still, despite what Major League Baseball has claimed, and uh, Rob Manfred, I'll get to that in a minute, but you know what Oakland A's minor league players are dealing with right now, um, they are probably making less than $15,000 a year um, for their season that takes up about half a year um, for what they're doing, despite I mean, I just went to a a minor league game in Jacksonville last week. And, you know, I'm pretty sure the revenue just that night, um, you know, was making a good amount of money for those owners and, and the, the people that run that. But nonetheless, this is, uh, you know, you essentially give, they give you a, a cash advance, right? 
um, and you get money up front. So if you're a minor league player, now it's getting into name, image, and likeness. Um, so you're you know, college players. But what they're betting on, they're not just giving this to anybody. They do like have advanced analytic metrics. They input all your data every indicator possibly of like what percentage, you know, what's the likelihood percentage of you making it to the big leagues, you know, getting through your first contract, getting a big second contract. And then they will come up with a number that is like, you know, they feel matches your worth that if you don't make it right. And they bet on you and they bet on the wrong player. They say you don't have to pay it back, but like they're willing to take the L a few times because they, they, they believe in their like analytics and their data metrics so much that they're going to bet on the right players that are going to get paid. And then you do have to pay them back like in the form of a certain percentage of your contract um, in all future earnings for the rest of your career uh, you know, for that. So it's not like a fixed amount of agreement. You're paying back what you got. You could end up paying back an enormously, you know, an enormous sum um, in an amount that's far, far greater than what you were loaned. I mean, so this is a, you know, this is a, a scheme that uh, comes out of Wall Street. That's like, you know, people, the C capital people that put up money for this, they're not looking to just do this for charity. It's, uh, it, they believe it's a good business model. And um, so you take people that need money right now, kind of like payday loan, and, uh, you know, they'll worry about how they figure out a way to pay it back later. And in this form, the payback is uh, is on a pretty epic scale compared to what even – you know, most people can even kind of comprehend, you know, most working class people at least. So that's where we are. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely dubious, I would say. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, minor league uh, baseball players, Nate, and that's another issue that I've uh, that I wanted to, to touch on here. And it's been really interesting, actually, through our work here on um, the Red Spin Report, sort of learning about the real conditions uh, that minor league players uh, have to face uh, before they're called up to the league. I mean, there's a piece by Market Watch that reported that uh, uh, that a lot of minor leaguers often earn under fifteen thousand dollars a season, which is less than most jobs in America get, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. And uh, also, that's only a few thousand dollars over the poverty line. But uh, MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred uh, thinks that uh, basically everything's fine. I mean, he rejects the premise, according to him, he rejects the premise that um, uh, uh, minor league players aren't getting paid enough and saying that, quote, we've made real strides and all these sorts of things and saying that, you know, he, he just doesn't agree that minor league players aren't paid a living wage and things like this. And so, I mean, how does the reality uh, of the conditions of minor league players sort of uh, figure into this whole situation? Because, I mean, Rob Manfred can can say all this, but I just feel like with all the coverage and things we've heard directly from minor league players here recently, it, it just seems like the opposite is clearly the case. Yeah, so here's a few, you know, just comments from former minor league players. I mean, Trevor May says the one time I uh, – I, I bought two top sheets from Walmart to create a wall between my room and the rest of the living room. Yeah, I even sewed a button on one of them so I could close the door. So they're having like, you know, kid kid like, you know, sleepover campouts, you know, pretty much every night with their teammates. He's talking about them getting housing provided for him, but you know, his definition of housing um, can be more like a, you know, a pretty 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 deplorable barracks type situation um another guy Corey Hahn said I stayed in the house with 11 other guys shared the dining room on air mattresses with my catcher one couch a tv and one king bed in the house each guy paid 300 a month asked 
you know, the reporter Hannah Kaiser said she asked Rob Manfred if his owners don't pay minor leaguers a living wage because they can't afford it, minor league owners, that, are, that is, or because they aren't interested in it. And, he, and Manfred says he rejects the premise that they're not paid a living wage. Reagan Buckley points out that as a former minor leaguer, I made 900 a month my first year of pro ball. Minor leaguers are only paid during the months that you play, April through September, and are not paid for spring training which is like the chance you get to be up with the big league club, your major league club, and ostensibly have a chance to like try to make the major league roster before you know you either get designated for assignment to a minor league club or, or, or kept on that, that major league roster. He said, I played eight years, and my highest salary was 2500 a month. His assessment is laughable. Um, and again, 2500 a month, that's not for like 12 months. We're talking about the April through September period. Um, so... I mean, it's essentially like a, you know, a modern Hunger Games, right? I mean, MLB that right now is like a metaphor, kind of for the uh, the sort of Hunger Games model of, uh, you know, if you make it to the big, you make it to the show, as it's called, you know, you're you're living the good life, and, and if you, you know, the more years you get, you get vested. There's there's great benefits, and you 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 know, living almost as large as anybody in America, uh, you know, or close, I mean, not, not like the super elite, the super wealthy, but like, you know, you're, you're way up there. Um, but if you don't, I mean, you're talking about, you know, having play, spent about a decade of your life really before you kind of start your career, just being mired in poverty. And, uh, you may or may not, you know, get that call and a lot of factors outside of your control, um, you know, depend on that. So I think it's a good metaphor for like the kind of precarious sort of like boom or bust um, reality. A lot of people feel It's like when you see that reality economically, a lot of people, it, it leads, it's the same mentality that leads to people wanting to play the lotto all the time. Right. They like, if you're, if you're struggling every day is a grind, but you at least have that chance in your mind, you know, that like, you know, you might be able to get rich. And I think that keeps a lot of people conforming and, uh, you know, in kind of like not being willing to sort of think too critically about the system because they think that they're just one little, you know, strike of luck or hard work or, you know, whatever it may be around combination of whatever uh, away from, from making it, you know, making it big and all the movies that reinforce those, those narratives and all the, the media that reinforces the idea of making it, making it, you know, living the good life and all that. Um, I think that the minor league baseball situation, it's a great, you know, metaphor, analogy, whatever, to, uh, you know, that larger sort of mindset of the uh, aspirational, you know, uh, American dream thinking that uh, that leads so many people to, to just to keep kind of trudging along, being unhappy in what they're doing with the hope that, you know, their luck's going to turn somehow. And uh, they'll be the one to have that, that great rag to the richest story. Yeah. And, you know, this is this situation with the minor league baseball players isn't just about, you know, housing. There is also the amount of time that these players are required to be available and working and they're always kind of on. So, I mean, what mm-hmm. what is, you know, your average like work requirement like for minor league players that are, are paid between forty eight hundred and fourteen thousand seven hundred dollars a year per season? Yeah, so let's first start off with the fact that, like, you know, these are uh, players that are riding on buses from town to town. They do typically, instead of playing three or four game series like they do in Major League Baseball, where they, you know, have their own, you know, you know, air, air travel lined up for uh, for all the away games and whatnot. Um, they they ride buses and they go somewhere for a week, probably get a weekly raid at some extended stay America, you know, motel, and you know, so you are not. 
you're on the road. I mean, so in my estimation, you know, the way I look at it, the time you're traveling, you know, that, that counts to like, you know, the top work time. I mean, you technically might be off the clock, but you're in some random town. You don't really know anybody, <laughs> you know, away from your home, away from your family, um, just staying in a, in a motel, playing a, 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 seri- a week series, you know, in Montgomery, Alabama. I mean, that's work time, right? That's time that you're, whether you're sleeping or you're, you know, you're up at the, the stadium in the morning, you know, taking a batting cage session or doing a bullpen session as a pitcher, uh, preparing, um, you know, you, you want to also go above and beyond to, you know, basically be one of those guys that gets labeled like an overachiever, someone who's like constantly striving to perfect their craft. And, you know, in, you know naturally with a, in a game like that, you are looking to try to maximize every potential advantage you can. It's, it's a hard thing to do if you're a hitter to get up there and stand in a batter's box with a ball coming, you know, in the 90 something miles an hour and with tons of movement on it and be able to hit that consistently and have your, you know, your prospects for your family depend on your ability to do that successfully or not. Um, you're probably going to put in a lot more time than what you're compensated for in general. And we're already talking about the compensation they're getting for the time they're officially on the clock for being not that good. It's not broken. There's no breaking this down by hours of work. You know, this is like broken down into, you know, salary compensation. That's uh, that, that just when you, when you divide up the number of days in a year, number of hours in a day, um, just, uh, doesn't add up to a lot. And, um, that's that's the reality where we are now, and it's uh, one that Major League Baseball is really obfuscating. Um, I feel like, uh, but to be you know, by doing these like little small, you know, uh, changes they've done in terms of like trying to maybe improve housing a little bit, um, like they said last year, then the collective bargaining agreement um, to cover up the fact that really not much fundamentally has changed, and uh, I think Robert Manfred is uh, pushing back in a way because I think he's. He, he feels on the defensive and he should be on the defensive because uh, he's pushing a lot of, uh, you know, a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> so Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Nate, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moving to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Friday, August 26, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. 
That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also listen to us at sputnik.mave, that's M-A-V-E, dot digital, and you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday, and we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. When uh, at the top of the hour today, the Justice Department has released a redacted search warrant affidavit for the search of former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home in Florida. And uh, the affidavit uh, stated that Trump uh, took uh, highly classified national security documents from the White House. Uh, Senator Mark Warren, who chairs the uh, Intelligence Committee, has called for an assessment of the damages posed by the mishandling of information. So it should be an interesting next couple of weeks as the uh, analyses uh, of this affidavit rolled in, at least to what is available. Uh, but Jackie, I was looking at an interesting uh, uh, piece here. There are some figures that were released by the Commerce Department's Bureau of Economic Analysis, or the BIA, that found that uh, corporate profits have surged to a record high of $2 trillion. That is an all-time high in the second quarter of this year as uh, these companies continue to raise prices amidst all this inflation, which, of course, comes uh, to the detriment of consumers and workers. Now, these were the uh, when we talk about the corporate profit margins, according to these figures over the past three months, they are the widest that they've been since the 1950s and is seriously uh, hitting workers right in the paycheck. Now, uh, Chris Becker, who's a senior economist at the Groundwork Collaborative, uh, wrote a response to this data saying, quote, we can argue until the cows come home about the cause of inflation, but we can't lose sight of the basic moral point that it is so outrageous that corporations are seeing skyrocketing profits while purchasing power for so many American households is declining. And I mean, Jackie, that to me just sort of feels like capitalist contradictions in a nutshell. So literally, uh, these corporations uh, are seeing record profits. I mean, two trillion dollars collectively in profits in this year. Meanwhile, uh, uh, workers are having their wages eaten at little by little by little. And of course, wages themselves have been stagnated for some years now. And so, I mean, it seems to me that this sort of thing can only go on for so long before there's a, a, some kind of inflection point. And this is precisely what we talk about on the show when we talk about how the people of the United States 
are continuing to see their own conditions uh, deteriorate right in front of their eyes. While at the same time, they see these uh, uh, corporations with, you know, these CEOs and these other bosses that sit up in these nice uh, air conditioned office all day and don't really do any work, just reap in incredible worth at their expense. And so, you know, this is a part and parcel of, I think, of what, you know, continues to eat away at the social fabric of this country when people continue to be, I mean, frankly, just beat up by this uh, capitalist system with no real uh, relief in sight. I mean, maybe sometimes they're thrown some crumbs, but I mean, just the fundamental injustice of this, Jackie, I think just shows, frankly, the fundamental inhumanity of the capitalist system itself. Yeah, it absolutely does. And I think, Sean, that I think what annoys me, and and that's not even a a sufficient enough a word, but it's the one that comes to mind right now. What annoys me about this conversation uh, and the way it's framed is that, you know, these authors, these, uh, you know, folks at these uh, 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 economic think tanks and, you know, Bloomberg, you know, although I appreciate that they pro- provided this information, I mean, they they kind of dance around the issue that people don't have enough money. That that's just that's just really it. Working people are not paid enough. Uh there are too many poor people that people don't have enough money. But the people who have made $2 trillion in the last quarter, that's not even a whole year's right. worth of profit. That is profit in the last uh, quarter, the second quarter of 2022, $2 trillion that could have immediately wiped out every dime of student loan debt in this country with some more left over. So I I feel like when we have these conversations about economics, one of the ways that the the smart economics people uh, try to kind of avoid stating the obvious that we talk about all the time, the fact that these companies' profits need to be seized and redistributed to the people, and people need to be paid more money. Is they say, you know, they use words like, you know, household budgets are squeezed and, uh, yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> buying power, American buying power isn't as strong as it used to be. No, no, no. Let's just call this what it is. The corporations are stealing from you in the last quarter of 2022, these corporations stole $2 trillion of American people's money. And I am wondering when people are going to ask themselves the question, yo, how are we going to get that back? (laughs) Yeah, totally. And and I appreciate you raising that point, Jackie, because I thought that was interesting as well that, um, you know, they use this uh, phrase of buying power. And you know, because what it implies is, man, these corporations are so making so much more money that um, Americans can't even buy stuff like they used to. But in reality, it's not so much uh, an issue of like, quote unquote, buying power. I mean, the truth is it this makes it more difficult for people to uh, uh, do things like buy food or pay rent or pay for health care and medicine and things like 
like that. It's not necessary. It's not a thing of uh, 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 Americans have less a- access to, you know, commodities and goods and things like that. We're talking about the necessities of life that are becoming more and more difficult for people to actually afford because of the super profits of these uh, uh, corporations. And this is precisely the point of capitalism is not just to generate profit, but to maximize profit at any cost, including a human cost. And we're seeing this show up, I think, in a couple of different ways in terms of how um, uh, this system just sort of uh, discards uh, humanity wholesale and only values it insofar as it can exploit it. Um, Let me see. Yeah, this was The Hill that uh, published an analysis from the Brookings Institute that found that up to four million people in the United States uh, remain out of work because of long COVID. Long COVID being defined as having symptoms of COVID-19 for at least 12 weeks, excuse me, after being infected with the virus. And, you know, that comes in multiple forms, uh, uh, neurological issues like brain fog, headaches, poor memory, respiratory system, things like this. And so, I mean, unfortunately, we know that for a lot of people, it's not an issue of just, you know, having COVID and feeling bad for a couple of weeks. But it's something that you deal with for the long term afterwards and perhaps even for the rest of your life. Um, And so uh, the annual cost of wages uh, that people have lost because of long COVID is around 100 and 70 billion dollars a year and could get as high as 230 billion dollars and i want to quote directly from the uh, uh, article here where it says quote taking a closer look at wages brookings found that the average u.s worker earns 1106 dollars per week and if up to four million americans are out of work due to long COVID, that translates to 230 billion dollars a year in lost earnings nearly one percent of the total u.s gross domestic product Critically, this number does not represent the full economic burden of long COVID because it does not include impacts such as the lower productivity of people working while ill, the significant health care costs patients incur, or the lost productivity of caretakers, said the report. And so, Jackie, it's just 100% clear that this is one of many long-term issues that we're going to be grappling with here in the United States for the foreseeable future, precisely because of how this government and this system mismanage and completely bungle the response to the coronavirus pandemic. And so because, um, you know, uh, 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 the profits of, of corporations and this, you know, a uh, hesitance to uh, disrupt uh, capitalist production any more than it already was by the pandemic and rushing people back to work and rushing kids back to school and all of that. All of these things, all of these measures that were uh, uh, put in place basically to protect this capitalist system through the pandemic at the expense of poor working and oppressed people um, is now sort of having these uh, lingering effects that isn't just impacting a handful of people. We're literally talking about a few million people. And not only uh, uh, are they sort of dealing uh, with this immediate impact of, you know, lost wages and unemployment and things like that, there still isn't any support for uh, folks that are still grappling with these uh, uh, lingering impacts of COVID-19 anymore that we were adequately uh, uh, supported from the onset of COVID-19. You know what I mean? And so there's just been this, there's been this steadfast refusal to support people financially, 
and otherwise in the way that they need to the extent that they need under this pandemic, Jackie. And, you know, it's not the ruling class that's going to really feel the burden of this as ever. And as has been the case, frankly, with the entirety of the time that we've been living under this pandemic, um, that burden is shouldered squarely and uh, distinctly by uh, the masses of people in this country. Yeah, and I see, you know, the the ruling class and the corporate class responding to, I think, people waking up to the fact that they were not served at all in this pandemic by the government, by the capitalist class, by the ruling class, with things like, you know, this idea of quiet quitting that that was reported in the, in the news uh, a few days ago. Like there's this this phenomenon and it's really not. But it, it it's just this. I think it's just another one of those ways that the system and the people that prop up the system found a way to like demonize working people for catching on to the fact that, you know what, if you are uh, doing a whole bunch of extra stuff stuff on this job that, that they're not paying you enough to do in the first place, you're being ripped off. You're being ripped off on your job anyway from a lot of these corporations. So a lot of people are like, you know what, this is what they pay me to do. This is what I'm going to do. I'm not doing anything outside of that. I'm just doing what I am paid to do within my job description at that, and that's it. So now, uh, you know, the, 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 the smart people who watch what go on in the corporate world have come up with this bizarre term called quiet quitting, yeah. <laughs> where people like just literally do their job and go home, you know? And, and I think, that that is a response in, in a way, I, I feel like, Sean, that's one of the ways that we can tell that two things are happening, I think, across the working class in this country, that more and more people, I do believe, are coming to the realization that their wages are being stolen, that they have been lied to about their workplace being, you know, a, a, a teamwork, you know, a, a team and a family and, and you know, where the corporate uh, uh, bosses and the CEOs care about you like family and, and that they're being underpaid and they don't have enough benefits. And the second thing is, of course, the corporate bosses realize that folks are coming to this realization. So they have to do something to get folks back in line before they actually start, you know, quitting for real on their jobs and, and joining the ranks of us crazy leftist radicals who want a revolution and uh, uh, socialism to take place, to, to replace the corporate bosses and redistribute that wealth. So, I mean, I, I can't, see how this system of just naked wage theft and exploitation can continue for too much longer. And if I see that it's coming to an end, Sean, we know that the the corporate bosses and the ruling classes, uh, uh, they know it's coming to an end too, and they're doing everything they can to, to stop it. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, and I knew that this whole quiet quitting piece was some mess when I saw that Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank. I mean, he made a little video um, a few days ago, maybe in a week or so now, talking about how uh, it's a bad idea and uh, all these sorts of things. Now, Kevin O'Leary, I'm looking at a, a South China Morning Post article from May of last year that that was breaking down the net worth of the, the cast of Shark Tank. And it says that Kevin O'Leary is worth $400 million. You know what I mean? And so it's just sort of wild. And this is something that we see all the time, right? We always see the, these capitalists, these ruling class figures, um, moralizing and finger wagging at poor and working class people about, you know, how they should feel and what they should think and what is the proper way to do. And you know what? I think a part of it is this, uh, this sort of deep underlying idea that has been implanted in the psyche and consciousness of the American people. Because if this person who's worth hundreds of millions of dollars is telling you, hey, you know, you should totally do more work than you're being paid for. Because what that implies is that if you do that just enough, right, if you bust your hump just enough with unpaid labor, then maybe one day you can be in a position like them where you can exploit the uh, labor of countless people and amass this uh, uh, just insane amount of wealth. I mean, it's a pretty ridiculous thing. It, it just sort of shows the absurdity of capitalist logic for someone with this kind of wealth, for this class of people with that kind of collective wealth to look working people in the straight face and admonish them, admonish them for only wanting to do the work that they're being paid for and nothing uh, less as if they're not already uh, uh, not getting the full share of the wealth that they produce from their labor. You know what I'm saying? And a shout out to the by any means necessary chat. Uh, Jam though says they still, they steal every day from us every time we punch the clock. And yet that, that's absolutely true. And see, this is where uh, consciousness, I think, comes into play because it's not framed to us as we're having our wealth stolen from us and having our labor exploited. We are indoctrinated to think that we should be grateful for the opportunity to go and be exploited. Right. And that whatever number we see on that check uh, 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 during every two weeks or whatever, is that ultimately it's a reflection of us and our efforts and not because of any outside entity or force and certainly not because of any economic system. And so this is the kind of uh, sickness that this uh, this country implants in us. But it's just I was just so struck by this uh, long covid piece with millions of people that are still out of work. I mean, we're uh, we're two years into this uh, pandemic. Uh, it's going to be three before you know it. I mean, it's already the end of August. You know what I mean? And so already we're seeing the ravages of this. And to me, it's just one more example of how this system and its ruling class literally does not care if we live or die. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 2. 
0252113201320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by each other. Sorry, that's just force of habit. And there's nobody there's there's no guest. Uh but we have a caller on the it's line here. Tarif, tell us what's on your mind. Okay. Um, how y'all doing? Thank y'all for taking my call. First, I like to say free drilling and science. Here I go. I got three comments. I'm gonna be quick as possible. Steve Courtley, some years ago, he was talking about these so-called black elites. Now, this is my opinion from what I took from him and learned throughout the years. These gatekeepers, basically what they are, they are gatekeepers of the Western global economy and narrative, right? And anybody astray from that, you know, you get, you know, it's, you know, basically your life destroyed and things of that nature, throwing in prison or, or whatever, but you still got to snap against it. But that's what they do. These people basically redirect people's attention to one problem at a time instead of looking at the whole picture and how to look at the picture and um, come up with solutions for everyone, for African-Americans and Africans in nature, so we can, uh, you know, move on from that. But basically, they they, they designed to basically wreck things, destroy organizations. Um, a second comment, libertarianinstitute.org came out with research that there were bots that was in Facebook and Twitter for the past five years where it was putting out pro-American um, messages on Facebook and Twitter, where it was trying to turn Asian people in Middle Eastern against Russia, right? Where it was very biased, but once they get that started and everybody jumps on, and then you, you got the, the tail, um, the dog chasing his own tail, where people would start chiming in, trying to, you know, find out what was going on. It was basically being manipulated with these bots. God knows what else is being used, um, used against. Who else is being used against? My, my, my last comment is this. Corey Kinson, he's a famous YouTuber with 10 million su- subscribers. He have evidence of discrimination where he'd be trending on YouTube for like two or three days. The next thing you know, he's hit with a a um, um, age restriction or something else would happen with the algorithm where he don't get that many views. And he go look at other people that have similar videos up like his and they, they just happen to be white and Come to find out, you know, they they the is doing better than his, so he's saying something's going on. But well, the the best thing to do with that is to come up with a solution then with transparency, open transparency on all platforms, like in a must say dealing with Twitter, right? Where you can look at the code and we can find out who's doing jankiness to those codes, who's trying to favor who. The way you stop that is by having open transparency and you call these people out if discrimination against African Americans or Africans or anybody else. My last comment is this. Republicans, if they take over the House and Senate, look, Republicans, I'm talking to you. You cannot just benefit you. You, you just white Christian conservatives only. You have to benefit us, too. You got to benefit black people. You got to benefit the, the black liberation party that's in Tampa that was raided last month. You got to benefit the move movement. You got to benefit all of us. You, you just can't have freedom of speech for one group. It got to be for all of us. Thank y'all for letting me get that out. God bless y'all. Well, thank you, Tariq, for calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. I, I don't know how many Republicans listen to by any means necessary, but uh, I take your point. Uh, Jackie Lukeman, your thoughts? Yeah, a couple of things. You know, the, the thing about um, uh, biased algorithms and, and that kind of thing, you know, and, I, and I've heard the... Um, open transparency, you know, the open source argument uh, that that's the answer to deal with that. And, and I, I, I hesitate with that because 
you know, the algorithm is not something that, you know, just organically sprung up out of some, you know, sentient goo in some laboratory. It was created by people who are biased. Uh, and even if we have a mechanism where we can all see the the code behind the algorithm, how uh, YouTube or social, you know, uh, Twitter or or whatever, Instagram, uh, um posts are interacted or, or, or whatever. I mean, what, what will, how will it help to just see it if most people don't know what to do with it? If even if you just show it to everyone, everyone won't have the opportunity to do anything to it, with it, to change it. And do you really want everyone having the opportunity to change code for an entire social media platform uh, that the entire world can access? I'm not, I'm not feeling that. I, I think that, you know, the, the problem with the uh, bias in the algorithm and the way it up votes or downgrades or hides or promotes uh, a certain content is directly related to the bias that people have. And there's really nothing you can do about that other than to completely change this entire capitalist white supremacist system where a few uh, very rich and very biased people create content or create a platform that everybody kind of are forced to use. And then, of course, creating our own platforms. That's another thing. But then our own platforms also have to rely on some of the technology, things like Amazon Web Services that are also created by very biased capitalist sources. So we've we've got to dismantle this entire capitalist system to get at the root of all of these bias issues and injustice issues. And, and I feel like just, you know, showing uh, some code, showing everybody the code uh, that that kind of shows how things are done isn't enough because I got to tell you, to be honest, Sean, I'm not going to know what the heck I'm looking at. So, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I, I think I tend to uh, agree, Jackie. And, you know, without question, tech censorship is uh, a serious issue. I mean, literally, we at, you know, by any means necessary and Radio Sputnik are victims of it. I mean, we were completely uh, deplatformed off of YouTube and off of all of the major um, uh, podcast platforms, not because of anything that we did. And not because of anything uh, that we said or because, you know, uh, the CEOs of these uh, companies, you know, uh, take issue with, with our politics or anything like that. It's precisely because these tech companies are literally operating in tandem with the state. And so, you know, under the guise of, quote unquote, uh, misinformation, saw fit to, you know, uh, basically uh, 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 rob uh, people in this country and around the world because of how, you know, other foreign media platforms have been, you know, uh, deplatformed uh, in the European Union and places like this. And so by taking away uh, this this alternative um, view, the, these alternative platforms and things like this, all that does is go on to basically support um, the designs of imperialism. And that's why we're experiencing what we're experiencing. You know what I mean? And so to your point, Jackie, and I feel like we talk about this uh, a good bit on our weekly segment, Tech for the People, on Tuesdays with uh, Chris Garafa about how really, and this goes to your point about completely restructuring things, Jackie, 
about how these social media platforms and these tech companies like YouTube and like Google, they should be treated more like public utilities. They should be democratically run institutions that operate at the pleasure of the users because these platforms uh, uh, at this point have become a part of daily life for a lot of people. This is where people get their news and all these sorts of things. This is is how a lot of people keep up with what happens. uh, That's what's happening in the world. And so until such time as it, uh, uh, you know, has that kind of character, then it will basically remain, you know, at the pleasure of their uh, billionaire owners and operators who will always um, work uh, towards their own interest. And even if that means to the detriment of the rest of us, as it often does. And so I think as such, I don't think we're likely to see much transparency until something like that happens. Having said that, we absolutely should be pressing for it and fighting for it right here, right now. But we have another caller on the line here dave tell us what's on your mind hey happy friday sean and jackie yo um i just wanted to say um a question about the labor movement and labor unions um so i just want to say like i'm totally in favor of all the actions that we're seeing you know the 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 rise of unions at starbucks amazon everywhere so so i'm totally in favor of, of labor flexing whatever muscles and, and um, ability we have through labor unions but I was just wondering if you can just help take a bigger picture and kind of contextualize or maybe state some of the limitations to a traditional union, because they don't seem particularly radical. Um, and historically, you know, they seem to may have been more radical in the past, but just your typical business union today, like what are the limitations of it? Um, how does it fit into a broader struggle for socialism? And maybe you could respond to this point also, which is I heard that you know, socialists or political radicals should engage with labor unions, but maybe not necessarily view it as our political home. So your thoughts, maybe if, you know, we could just be a little bit critical, even though we still support it. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dave. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. I can't claim to be any kind of uh, expert on labor struggles or labor history. But what I do know for certain when we talk about the historical context of why uh, organized labor in the United States looks the way it does. I mean, a lot of it is precisely because of like a a violent uh, uh, red baiting and anti-communism, because we know throughout history, even if we're just talking about in the United States, that there traditionally has been a lot of communists, socialists and revolutionaries within not only unions, but uh, uh, large unions that were uh, ultimately summarily uh, pushed out because, (laughs) frankly, of their effectiveness of organizing these uh, uh, working class people. And so I think that that really has a huge impact on the politics of uh, labor struggles as they play out in the United States today. Now, in terms of the role that they play in the labor struggle as socialists, as communists, as revolutionaries, I think it's our duty to support and amplify all of these different labor struggles uh, uh, as they are. And I mean, in terms of the politics, I mean, I see it as the same way as we would uh, entering any uh, uh, working class or poor neighborhood or community here in the United States. Because if you go into our communities, there isn't, they're, they're not necessarily like revolutionary or, or radical or 
already. And so, you know, my feeling about unions is that, you know, when we talk about these sectors of labor, my attitude is that if you're not in a union, you should be in a union. And if you're in a union, you should struggle to make it a fighting union. And I think that's precisely what we're seeing across the so many sectors of labor right now, whether it's uh, uh, the teachers, uh, whether it's Starbucks, whether it's the, the, the Amazon workers. And I mean, speaking of Amazon, the fact that, you know, we've been seeing, you know, those kinds of advances that have been made against this positively gargantuan uh, corporate entity and how a lot of this started off because of the efforts of, you know, black workers in the South, I think just speaks to a lot of the ongoing uh, uh, important dynamics. And so, you know, even with its limitations, I mean, I think, um, you know, that uh, 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 I, I mean, we could argue that just about anything could have its limitations, but I think it's objective positive that we're seeing all of these uh, labor struggles play out. And like I say, I, I do think that that we should support them because I think they're going to be an important aspect. Speaking of labor is going to be an important aspect of building this broad uh, working class movement that we're going to need if we're going to actually bring about socialism in this country. But uh, Jackie Lukeman, curious how you feel. Yeah, I, I agree. And I'm glad you pointed out you know, the, the, the historical basis for like the, the political uh, character of a lot of labor unions today, it's rooted in uh, the, the repression from the U S government of a very effective and, and formally very robust and formerly historically very lefty socialist communist connected labor movement uh, in this country. So, you know, the roots are there for the kind of labor movement that we want to see. And I think that when we're looking at the, uh, the kind of liberalism in some labor uh, organizations that I, I know is off-putting to a lot of people, I think we have to keep that in mind that, you know, labor unions are, do have, that there's like, there are vestiges of that radicalism that are there, but they've been papered over, you know, by uh, the repression tactics, very effective uh, repression tactics of the U.S. government where, you know, people who were more inclined to a liberal interpretation of labor rights um, were, uh, it, it, more easily rose up in the ranks of labor organizations than the more radical uh, working class membership very often. And, and, and there is, I think, Sean, a generational character to that, too, where I think that a lot of the old guard of the labor movement tend to be a lot of those kind of liberalish sort of people who only want to go so far, who don't want to talk about, uh, you know, uh, redistribution of wealth of the of the bosses. Uh, but I think that is also being challenged by this new generation of labor organizing, and those folks are hearkening back to that history of much more radical labor organizing. And 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 in the instances where they're not, I think they are a lot more open to be reminded of that history and to be uh and and to receive it favorably and to go a lot farther with it, Sean. Yeah, definitely. Another thing I wanted to mention, along with the history of 
repression is uh, the reality of co-optation, which uh, a lot of movements ultimately face and how broad swaths of the U.S. labor movement uh, at a certain point basically got, uh, you know, uh, brought into, you know, affinity with uh, like the mainstream of the Democratic Party and things like that. You know, and that sort of deal always has a, a constraining sort of a impact on things. But I mean, personally, you know, I feel positive about how things are moving and I'm confident that a lot of these uh, contradictions and limitations that we're raising will be uh, addressed and reconciled by this uh, uh, generation of labor strugglers. Some of them, depending on the uh, 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 sector of labor, are quite young. I mean, I've kind of noticed that, particularly amongst the Starbucks workers. I mean, we're we're looking at some pretty young people here that are uh, uh, engaging in these fights. And as we've been stating on the show, when you look at the economic situation of uh, the Gen Z adults, people born between 1996 and 2004, I mean, it makes all the sense in the world uh, that they would get involved in these fights. So it's definitely an important thing to uh, uh, continue to consider as we see these things evolve. And, you know, Jackie, I don't think it's any coincidence that uh, at least in my estimation, it feels like we've been seeing this uptick in uh, labor fights since the onset of the pandemic, because right here on by any means necessary. I mean, we talked to uh, we talked to uh, uh, target workers and um, I believe we talked to sanitation workers. If memory serves, we talked to people from yeah. different uh, uh, sectors of labor who were also feeling the, the brunt of uh, uh, the pandemic because of the complete lack of protection. So this system expected them to go out and do their job as usual, putting themselves at risk for a, a, a disease that at that time, you know, there was no vaccine for or anything like that. I mean, those were those like scary Wild West uh, early days of the pandemic that was deeply confusing because this government uh, put forth no effort to, you know, enact a basic education program about the pandemic, which we still haven't had to this day. By the way, we haven't had one on the monkeypox either. And so, you know, we see these uh, mistakes continue to get um, uh, made, but it really does seem like we saw that kind of turn towards a certain kind of labor militancy and fight back that came about as a result of this overall abandonment of the working class in this country uh, uh, coming during the time of the pandemic. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here as we continue. Shout out to the Biden Means Necessary chat. Noah29 says the pandemic and George Floyd's uprising have radicalized more Gen Zers. I think that's absolutely true. And that actually just reminded me about um, earlier this week. Matter of fact, on uh, Tech for the People on Tuesday, we were talking about how, you know, these big TikTokers, the, these Gen Z uh, uh, TikTok 
influencers, if you will, um, are, are lending their support and solidarity to uh, the Amazon union drive. You know what I mean? And so, you know, stuff like that just lets me know that the kids are all right. You know, they, they really are. Uh, they, they have a level of frankly, sophistication that generations before them weren't able to have simply because of their access to information. And so I know they be on that phone too much, but uh, I think that if we, if we work with them in a multi-generational struggle, we'll see some amazing things from those young people. Another thing I wanted to touch on today, Jackie, was, uh, you know, just yesterday, uh, uh, Joe Biden uh, gave a speech in Rockville, Maryland, not that far from where we are in Washington, D.C., and uh, saying that the Republicans had turned towards, quote, semi-fascism. He said, quote, the MAGA Republicans don't just threaten our personal rights and economic security. They're a threat to our very democracy. They refuse to accept the will of the people. They embrace, embrace political violence. They don't believe in democracy. This is why in this moment, those of you who love this country, Democrats, independents, mainstream Republicans, we must be stronger. What we're seeing now is either the beginning or the death knell of an extreme MAGA philosophy. It's not just Trump. It's the entire philosophy that underpins the, I'm going to say something, it's like semi-fascism. Now, this is interesting, Jackie, because in a way, Biden is highlighting something that I think is undeniably true. And that is that the uh, far right element of this country is absolutely on the march and is looking to make a play both in midterms and in 2024 when we select the next president. But of course, he's leaving out the broader context of how the actions of the Democrats in large part help facilitate this rise. Right. I mean, why do we get Trump to begin with? How is it that a swaggering bigot reality television star and wrestling Hall of Famer was able to defeat Hillary Clinton, a well-credentialed imperialist? Fair and square, despite what they say. I mean, the, he beat them fair and square within the confines of uh, American electoral democracy. And it's because, in large part, they uh, facilitated it in a number of ways. So that's one thing. But what he's also trying to do when saying Democrats, independents, mainstream Republicans, he's basically saying that there has to be a kind of uh, anti-fascist front that includes the leadership of the liberal wing of the ruling class, right? And uh, as such, this is the uh, main way that we're supposedly going to defeat uh, the fascist creep in the United States. And we've talked on the show uh, before about, you know, the role that liberals play in facilitating uh, the rise of fascism, which, you know, compels us to sort of look at the class character of a fascism itself and how it happens and how it is always the case, or I should say it is often the case that uh, there is a liberal wing of a given ruling class in a time and place that uh, uh, pushes these very things along. And so, you know, uh, within the broader contradictions of this system and how the Democrats as a liberal wing of the ruling class factor into that, absolutely, in my opinion, help give rise to Trumpism. That is the uh, uh, dominant force in the right wing of the ruling class in the United States right now. And so in a weird way, Jackie, this feels like 
that meme of the two Spider-Men like pointing at each other, you know, going back and forth and trying to see, you know, who who's real and who's fake. But I mean, this feels like, you know, more smoke and mirrors that are coming from the Democrats while, you know, sort of in a way pointing to a real thing, but really obscuring the deeper root of the issue. When in reality, it is the whole of this ruling class that is responsible for what we're experiencing right now. And it is that capitalist class and the capitalist system that they protect that has to be defeated if we're going to see real change. But voting blue, no matter who, without question, is not going to get us there. It's absolutely not, because, you know, when you take Joe Biden's own words and it is not hard to take that man's words and use them against him because... I mean, he's been around long enough that he's a walking contradiction all in his own flesh. He says they refuse to accept the will of the people, the, the, the MAGA Republicans. Didn't we ask for completely canceling all that student loan debt? I seem to recall the people asking for that because I seem to recall the Biden Harris campaign promising that they would and on their little campaign website. But, but, we only got $10,000 canceled of student loan debt. Okay, 20000 for folks who borrowed on Pell Grants. But it seems to me that was ignoring the will of the people. Um, what, didn't people ask for more? Uh, uh, we were just talking about the government's COVID response. The will of the people was for more government responses and support than what Trump provided in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Where'd that happen? What, what did, did we get that from him? No. Will of the people completely ignored in that. So, I mean, Joe Biden, I think, has reached the point in his personal political record where you could take almost anything he says and use it against him up against, you know, 40 years of being against the people and, and literally legislating against the people over and over again. But I think, Sean, um, his th- th- that truth about Joe Biden is also reflective, I think, of the Democratic Party writ large, because they've run out of ideas. They have literally run out of ways to get away from their own arrogance and hubris and the record of their arrogance and hubris, which has caught up to them with the rise of, just like you said, Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. But it's also caught up to them in the fact that they don't have any alternatives for who to run in 2024, that that no one. So they have backed themselves into a corner by not responding, not meeting the will of the people time and time again as a true uh, opposition party um, uh, that's supposed to be the the antithesis of the so-called bad guys should be doing, but they never really did, Sean. And and here we are at the fork in the road, kind of like the roadrunner or or the coyote waiting for the anvil to drop because both parties have gone on about their business running away from us. Definitely. Shout out to a longtime listener in the Biden's Necessary Chat that said, uh, what about Jim Crow Joe's neoliberal right wing garbage sending 1000 troops into Somalia, bombing all over the world, arming Nazis and Ukraine? And this is important because it reminds us that imperialism is a bipartisan issue. 
Now, the, this ruling class duopoly of the Democrats and the Republicans would have us believe that, you know, they're mortal enemies and all these sorts of things. But when it comes to endless war and the endless suffering that comes with it for the struggling people of this earth, they are in lockstep. You know what I mean? And so this is what uh, uh, Joe Biden's words are sort of obscuring here. And it is the bipartisan nature of how we got to where we are in this country right now, politically, socially, and economically. And even saying bipartisan, I think, is insufficient because it's a result of the machinations of the ruling class, the wealthy minority in this country. And on a similar note, you know, speaking of um, midterms, Jackie, uh, there's a recent Gallup poll that's noting that Joe Biden is actually seeing his highest approval ratings in a year. And it says that uh, the rating rose to 44% during August. And uh, this is an improvement. It's a jump from his approval rating, which hit a record low in July at 38%. And uh, a morning consult political poll that was released earlier this week found that uh, 43% of registered voters approve of Biden's job performance, I'm quoting now, whereas 55% disapprove. Earlier in August, 39% say they approved and 59% disapprove. Now, these shifts in dynamics and in polling, Jackie, I'm actually not that surprised about because I think it shows that Biden and the Democrats are having some success with this kind of home stretch push to uh, uh, basically give people a reason to vote for them come November. I mean, the uh, this this ten thousand dollars student loan relief piece, I think, is a big part of that. And they've also done an excellent job um, blowing that up and really hyping it like this massive achievement and victory for, uh, uh, you know, the masses of people in this country. But as we uh, have been pointing out here on the show this week since it came out, is that that barely makes a dent for uh, most people in terms of how much debt they owe, which is closer to $40,000 for the average people, for the average person, as we've been noting. You know what I mean? And so I just think that, again, this is the, the propaganda working well uh, to the uh, benefit of the Democrats. And, you know, God forbid, if you actually raise this issue, you know, you're accused of being a killjoy. I've even seen people like <laughs> accusing folks who are critical of this, of like attacking people who f this actually did help in some way, or if it maybe even uh, completely wiped out their debt. And I mean, speaking for me, I'll say for the record, if you're in that camp and that $10,000 wiped out your debt or made a considerable impact, then I legitimately congratulate you. I think that's great. And but and it's not these people's responsibility for the overwhelming majority of folks for who it didn't really have an impact on. That rests squarely with this government that has the power to solve this issue right here, right now, through the stroke of a pen. I said it before and I'll say it again. Every day, Joe Biden wakes up and makes the conscious decision to not cancel student debt completely. He chooses not to. It's not that he has to worry about pushback from the Republicans or that he has to run it through Congress or things like that. He could sign an executive order to do it right now, but he does not because he does not want to. And we always have to bear that in mind. But because of the timing of this and because of the way that they've been portraying this, Jackie, and also because they're still holding up, you know, a, a Trumpism as 
the great evil to be avoided. And that great evil then is supposed to excuse the uh, the Democrats impotence in uh, uh, in all these instances. Right. I think that that has made a potent combination that I think has impacted people because it's given them the oppression that the Biden White House is, in fact, doing something. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, and and for some people, and I think this is this is a a reality and a truth for some people that we need to be very clear on. For some people, doing something really is all that uh, some people require. I mean, because after four years of Donald Trump, uh, you know, allegedly not doing anything for people, you know, Biden doing something, anything, that's enough for some people. And and that is true. And I'm not I'm not going to knock people who don't get that. That is the point of struggle that we have uh, in, in, in the issue of political education. That, that's why we have political education. That's why we have these conversations. And I got to tell you, I'm one of those people that that student loan uh, 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 stunt that Biden just pulled wiped out the, the little, little bit of debt I had. That's fantastic, wonderful. And I'm still mad that my cousins who went to graduate school, one uh, just completed her PhD, they will never be able to pay off that debt. Six figures in debt. I know, well, heck, everybody I know who graduated uh, college beyond the uh, uh, undergraduate level has six figures in student loan debt. As as happy as I am that I don't have to deal with these, you know, the student loan I had, honestly, I wasn't going to pay it back anyway. But I mean, I, I am still legitimately angry that what you said, Sean, that every single day, Joseph Biden consciously decides not to completely wipe out everyone's student loan debt because he can, he knows he can, he just doesn't do it. And that, I think, is where we all should uh, uh, struggle. Uh, that that is all of our point of struggle, agreement, and organization. Like, why why does not why doesn't Joe Biden want to alleviate this this horrible economic burden on so many American people that would stimulate the economy if people didn't have to take you know five a thousand dollars every month out of their pay and pay these student loan loans back. Well, then you get into Biden's legacy. The reason uh, is that he set this debt trap system up back in 1976. So, of course, he's not going to be the one to fix it. And then we get into the discussion of why are we still voting for politicians that put us in this trick bag in the first place? So so I think that instead of, you know, falling for these politicians uh, uh, gambit to have us at each other's throat about, you know, who got helped and who didn't, um, we need to start turning our attention and our ire at the ones who are pulling the strings and doing the manipulating uh, uh, um, uh, behind the scenes and always have been. And that's the politicians telling us that we we have to vote for them to save them from the other guy, Sean. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I'm actually just noticing, I'm looking at our uh, subscriber count on uh, our Rumble. It looks like we're up to 416. We've broken 400. So what? Yeah, we broke 400. Kind of a big deal. You know, we'll be at a million before you know it. But uh, I definitely um, 
get what you're saying, Jackie, in this case. And, you know, I, I you know, not to be too predictive, but I, I just get the feeling that this next round of elections during the midterms and in 2024, it's always, you know, this this, this trick bag that we talk about, you know, about, you know, the, the, the Democrats offering nothing but just saying, you know, vote for me because I'm not a Republican. That's always pretty intense. But I just feel like with the combination of Everything that's happening right now and the pressure that working people and poor people and oppressed people are feeling in such an intense way, uh, uh, more than I think we've seen uh, in some time, I feel like it's just going to be a complete like full court press. And I don't even know if I'm using that uh, uh, imagery correctly, but I do think that that kind of, uh, you know, uh, you know, a uh, vote shaming as people call it is going to be particularly intense. I think that people are, are going to be particularly harsh against alternative parties, um, alternative media platforms, or really just uh, people who have the audacity to question uh, uh, why uh, things have to continue to operate in this way that they'll be seen as facilitating a Trump victory or a Republican victory. And so, again, the responsibility will be will, will always be on us to pull the Democrats bacon out of the fire than it is for them to actually do something for us that's substantive. You know, God forbid. You know what I'm saying? And so it's this vicious cycle that I think will remain in place as long as this capitalist system is in place. And so when you have a situation where you're not actually benefiting people's interests, well, then you have to pretend that you are and then finger wag when they uh, say something about it. But we're going to leave it there for today and this week here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be back with an all-new slate of episodes next week. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.